Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Not one among them has the courage to push the button. No one willing to enter history as the great destroyer. In the end, it's not their lives that people value most. It's their reputations. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is I'm Done Looking for the Truth. Episode number seven in our Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker coverage. Today we get through the game's first ending and finally put the game's protagonist, Big Boss, into our crosshairs. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Snake, Coldman's going to launch the nuke from that base. He's targeting MSF. Based on what Huey's told us, it'll take two more days to prep for launch. But it looks like there's another reason they picked that date. What's that? Tomorrow is day one of a U.S.-Soviet summit in Vladivostok. The launch is probably connected somehow. That's right. They're holding the SALT-2 talks. You think Coleman's trying to disrupt the negotiations? Hmm. Either that, or use it as a bargaining chip. He's still got POS, too. At any rate, we're running out of time. I'll figure something out. After spending most of the game in Costa Rica, our setting now shifts to Nicaragua, a U.S. missile base specifically. Recall that Amanda and her compas are Sandinistas originally from Nicaragua and fled to Costa Rica to avoid U.S.-backed forces. Now, we circle back to a U.S. military base in Nicaragua appropriately. Snake tells Kaz that Mother Base should be evacuated. With MSF in Coldman's crosshairs, their forward operating base might soon be sitting at the bottom of the Caribbean. Kaz lets Snake know that MSF believes in Snake and doesn't feel the need to evacuate. The combat unit is also on standby in case Snake needs backup. Amanda and her compa guess, though, they've been transported safely back to the mainland. With that out of the way, Snake sneaks into the missile base in the back of a truck hidden inside a cardboard box. Y'all ever heard of this? Snake hiding in a box? Unheard of. It's a fun little moment, but reminds me maybe in one of our next episodes we can talk about all the wild cardboard boxes that are in this game. Like the tank. Immediately upon infiltration, Snake knows something is wrong. This U.S. base is being manned by Soviet troops and kidnapper drones. Snake makes for the comm tower, which is where Peace Walker is being controlled from. The walker itself is on an airfield at the far side of the base. He makes contact with Paz via security monitor, but triggers an alert stage that will play through the next mission. Snake. I'm coming, Paz. Do not worry about me. I am an angel of peace. I will be watching over you. Here goes nothing. Snake now has to work his way back through the base on full alert in one of the game's more difficult firefights. Well, at least if you're trying to S-rank these non-lethally. You'll be contending with well-armed and well-armored troops through several maps and a fair share of kidnapper drones to boot. The final arena here will also include a hind D and escort unit that you will have to neutralize before you can make it into the command center. 
Any thoughts on these uh, two missions inside the U.S. missile base, Brian? Yeah, I like it. I like. Um, I don't know if it's a. It's weird to say this considering all the keycard stuff in MGS One and the deliberately insane pacing of two. But like, I do think the back half of this game, the pacing is a little. It feels a little. I don't. There's not as much opportunity to unload. I mean, I, I know that's what the bosses are for, but I feel like you have so much. Like it's a little bit of. V overcomes this by just having all the side ops, but it's there's a little. And I know this game has side ops, but they're not as integral to the experience. But it's a little bit frustrating sometimes that you keep developing weapons and never really get to use them. So I had no problems doing this the second time. I just blew through this base, <laughs> just gunned everybody down. Well, not everybody, but most people. I, I was just like, why not? Let's 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 go full auto here. We're 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 not. There, there's no civilians here. There's nobody who can get caught in the crossfire. We're not fighting you know uh a nebulous paramilitary force in an abandoned village we're just straight up fighting the u.s we're just straight up fighting like military people at this point so it's great i just went nuts yeah even in like previous playthroughs where i was able to ask rank a bunch of stuff the second shootout mission here um you need to go like deep into the extra ops and beat this game several not several times but you know you have to you have to put a lot of hours into this game to have weapons to get through the shootout part of this uh, base non-lethally. Mm. Um, because you're just even after beating the game in Chapter 5, you still, just with your Mosin Nagant and uh, Trank pistol, are not going to be able to clear the space. You need Yeah, the Trank, the trank is tough to do that, yeah. Yeah, um, especially because... So in this game, if enemies are helmeted, you need to shoot them once in the head to knock off their helmet and then again to like knock them out. In the Phantom Pain, which has a similar mechanic, if you like hit a soldier in the face, um, you can, you know, tranquilize them with one shot. You just can't hit them from behind in the head. Yeah. And that's only if that's only if you use the trank, you overuse the trank and they adapt to it, which mm-hmm. uh definitely happened to me. Yes, they definitely do. Um so Snake is late, however. Coleman has already sent the false data to U.S. missile defense, aping a Soviet nuclear attack. In retaliation, Peace Walker will launch a nuke into the Caribbean, proving its AI competence and eliminating MSF in the process. Snake is about to fire on Coleman when... Stand down, big boss. You're late. Professor... Professor? Yes, well, taking over the base took longer than expected. But I brought the technology. What? You provided the money and land. Center alone could never have accomplished so much in so little time. Zadarnov, you backstabbing son of a- Backstabbing? Correct me if I'm wrong, but were we not enemies all along? Do you really think my comrades were working for the company? Do you truly think we'd faithfully serve a pack of depraved capitalist dogs? What are you going to do? Launch a nuke. Target Cuba. We've been priming you for Galvez turning cloak and revealing himself as Zdornov, but turns out he's not just betraying Big Boss, but Coldman too. His men seize the base and the Peace Walker platform with their sights on Cuba. A nuclear strike delivered by a U.S.-created platform from a U.S. missile base in a country whose right-wing government is being propped up by the U.S. would certainly cause ripples in the international community and strengthen the growth of communism. Paz is still playing the scared girl facade, though she knows about Zadornov and is in no real danger here. Zadornov wants her to kill Coleman, but she's unable to pull the trigger. 
He does it on his own, retribution by a dead hand, though he leaves Coleman alive so as to transmit the confirmation code. And he coerces Strangelove into changing the target under threat of destroying the boss AI. Finally, Zadornov turns to Snake, who he commends for being a true commandante. He took a leaderless group of Sandinistas and molded them into a hardened guerrilla force, now more than capable to run their own counterinsurgency against the Somoza government. Big Boss is that most complete human being, just like Che, and as far as Zadornov thinks, that's a good, pla- good place for Big Boss's legend to end. Dead at age 39, just like El Che. Ironic, isn't it? In the end, a legend is merely fiction. You'll die as the boss did, and become as did she, an eternal fraud. your gun at a comrade we will not be pawns of the kgb we will win our own victory hasta la victoria siempre amanda Uh. we're home look we're back in nika we did it amanda i mean comandante boss you hurt i'm fine Big boss. Big boss. Big boss. Big boss. Big boss. Big boss. Apologies for the long sound clip, but that truly is one of the cooler moments in Big Boss's story. He was he was the tool of a government, or perhaps somebody else, but his legend and will still broke through his prescribed path while elevating those around him. With Amanda, who Snake refers to as Joan of Arc, help, they are able to close down the store here, taking everyone into custody and returning to Mother Base. Well, not Snake. Just like a decade ago in Snake Eater, he still has one more mission to complete. Eliminate the boss. Or the AI pod that is supposedly her. Strangelove is not quite on board with Snake, as she thinks her AI reboot is still pretty good. Together, they agree to go talk to the Mammal Pot together, with Strangelove now calling Snake Boss. Before we move on to the next part of the story, any thoughts on this, Brian? I mean, you, you kind of covered it. Like, it's pretty great. I, I love Steve Bloom. That's my, that's my thought. It's a, it's a um, ridiculous performance. <laughs> it is really great. And I, I do love um, the Sandinistas bursting in here as kind of yeah. like the big uh, victory moment of this story, more or less. Um, it I pays like off. It, it pays off some of the. I mean, not, not like specifically Chico, but it pays off the the like the pep talks he was giving them earlier. Because mm-hmm. um, you don't really, at least the first time through, not knowing the story, you don't really think of Snake as kind of whipping these soldiers into shape. Um, But then when you go actually think about it, think back on it, it's like, oh yeah, he did kind of round them out into a stronger unit than they were before he met them. He was, he Um, was, uh, they were saluting him. So he was walking up to him and doing CQC to them. That's how, and then now they, now they, (laughs) now they love him. And that's how how he makes them love you. Yeah. We cut back to the chopper transporting Kaz and company back to mother base. Him and Paz put a nice little bow on the mission to boot Peace Sentinel from Costa Rica. Prematurely, though, as something starts beeping. 
While everyone was distracted, Coleman grabbed the nuclear football and entered the confirmation code. Not only is Peace Walker going to move forward with its strike on Cuba, it's also transmitting the data to NORAD, so the U.S. brass will have to make a decision on whether to retaliate. A decision without the president, as he's off at the SALT II negotiations. These are Coleman's last acts. He doesn't believe the U.S. will retaliate, but Peace Walker will, proving the need for his AI. It's a leap of faith, though, as Coleman breathes his last breaths and leaves everyone else to worry about nuclear Armageddon. Huey is able to tap into NORAD to keep MSF abreast of the latest commands coming from SAC, Strategic Air Command. They've gone to DEFCON 3 as they try to scramble all the necessary decision makers to determine the American response. With no other options, all falls to Snake. He needs to destroy Peace Walker to stop the end of the world. She's entered launch mode. Peace Walker's rendered her judgment. The target is Cuba. We broke down Peace Walker as a mech last time. This fight plays far more difficult, and the Peace Walker spends the entire battle on four legs instead of two. The arena is much bigger than the mine basin, but there's zero elevation here. The airfield is flat and urban. Additionally, Peace Walker can walk behind buildings that the player cannot. Peace Walker will begin the battle in nuclear launch mode. It will be stationary with its ICBM launcher aimed offshore. You will need to hit it with several blasts to move it into small target suppression mode, aka Fighting Snake. While it is in launch mode, it will still attack Snake with its missile array. And it will return to this nuclear launch mode a couple times during battle, which you will again have to hit it with enough firepower to have it target you. Peace Walker has similar attacks in this mode as it did previously. The rockets and S-mines and flamethrower are all still pains in the asses. It will also have some sort of radar interference shield, which will misdirect any rocket weapons launched at it. Drill mines get used quite a bit too. They bury under the ground and come up under Snake before detonating. Personally, this is one of the tougher battles, at least in that it's a battle of attrition the first time around. You'll be resupplying with regularity, but you don't want to be loose with your ammo either. With limited rocket carriage, you can easily find yourself in a situation without ammo and no supply markers. I know I did recently. I usually go into this battle with three rocket launchers, the RPG-7, the C. Gustav, and the Stinger. This isn't usually my ammo for mech battles. I usually like to carry one machine gun in instead of uh, three rocket launchers, but you will need as much firepower as possible, um, and the bullets really don't do much damage to justify carrying them in this battle. Uh, I don't remember remember exactly what I brought in when I beat this nine years ago, but I I still brought my machine gun this time, just for the drill drill mines, just to get them the fuck out of there. You can shoot them as they're burrowing in and then they're gone. But you can also, you got to be really precise with your rocket hits. You can't just spam. It's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's an, it's, um, it's not, it's, it's kind of on the right level of difficulty. It's just a, it's a big boss. It's, I'll, I'll, so, more like in the, I don't want to say Monster Hunter style of boss because those are more mobile, but it is more just like a kind of a classic. Mm-hmm. I, it's 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 not as much a Metal Gear fight as it's like a classic old school boss where it's just avoid damage, avoid damage. Okay, now you can attack. Avoid like mm-hmm. you have to keep running around for a while, and then you you don't get to you you really really should not take the three seconds to to fire rockets. You, you need to like keep moving and yeah. keep re, keep positioning yourself and just get out of the way. 
then you can you can launch your own attacks for ten seconds. So then you got to run again. It's not that it's 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 a good fight. It's not like mind blowing. Again, none of this game's bosses are you know. There's no uh, like really subversive or transgressive stuff in the boss fights. They're just robot fights. But hey, mm-hmm. robot fights are they, they work for this series. Yeah, and I think the. This is by far, uh, maybe excluding the end battle, which was three maps, like the biggest map we've seen for a boss fight in Metal Gear. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think you'll see that even expand more with the Sahelanthropus fight in MGSV, which is just like half of Af- Afghanistan is available yeah. to you when you're fighting um, Sahelanthropus. So, um, yeah, I like it. I'd, like I said, it's it's hard enough where, you know, you might die the first couple times you try it, but once you kind of figure out what your loadout is and a good strategy... Um, I mentioned the radar deflection thing where it, uh, what, off-steers your missiles or rocket attacks. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the biggest thing you have to worry about because, uh, like I said, with the limited rocket launcher and supply markers, um, you can't just like waste a bunch of rockets when yeah. it's uh, shielding itself. You need to make sure those land. Um, and you can use a chaff grenade, which is something you can develop in the latter portion of the story mm-hmm. um, that uh, will we'll disable it if you can uh, throw it close enough to the mech. Um, if you it's pretty it's, forgiving. It's pretty forgiving. Yeah. Um, um, that's kind of, I think that's what I meant when I almost said it's like a monster hunter battle where it's almost more about your loadout than, mm-hmm. than your, uh, I think, than like your skill level. Yeah. I, I know I mentioned the stinger um, as being one of my loadouts, but now uh, thinking back on it, especially when we played co-op, which we'll talk about more in a subsequent episode. Um, I really like the LAW, the law, uh, because it's just a quick reloading rocket launcher. Uh, when you have the Stinger missile, like the amount of time it takes to reload because he basically drops the giant thing off his shoulder and then pulls another well, one off. Well, because when you when you use the Stinger, he's got to come down from the rafters. He's got to take his coat off. Just a lot. It's just a lot for the Stinger to do. Man. He's a 60-year-old man. Leave him alone. <laughs> I get that. Um, but yeah, so uh, like like you said, I think it's it's this is kind of supposed to be like the end of game boss battle, even though there is another chapter. Um, and I feel like this one is kind of more enjoyable than a lot of the big metal gear fights. Like, yeah, um, definitely more enjoyable than Rex. Yeah. Um, Rex is not that fun. <laughs> um, Ray, Ray is, Ray is fun, but it's definitely very, a lot simpler. Um, yeah. So you just kind of have to cartwheel around and hit the stingers. Th- when that's, the things yeah, are. this is like an advanced version of the Ray fight. I feel like it's just avoid damage, avoid damage, then attack, avoid damage, avoid damage, then attack. Yeah, there's no, but I would say it's probably not. The Shagohod fight is less a fight. It's like the second fight is okay. The first fight is like a set piece more than a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think the sh- yeah Shagohod's like the coolest set piece. I think of all the mm-hmm. big mech battles, but it's not like the most. Because especially in a game where you have like six boss fights that are more compelling than the Volgan Shagohot fight, yeah, um, that that way it just doesn't stick out. Whereas this one clearly is better, probably than all the mech fights. I would say. I, I um, think I like Sahelanthropus more. Oh, oh, I meant within this game itself. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the pu- pupa maybe, um, but that's yeah, also kind of good. more of a retread, and it's definitely not as dynamic as this boss fight. Um, I just like the pupa. Uh, I think I think the pupa is cute. Yeah, sings. It's, it, like it loves to sing and, and drive around in circles, just like a big yeah. dog. Um, it, yeah, I was gonna say the uh, thinking about Metal Gear games, each having their own big mech fight. It's one of the other things about Revengeance that's so fun is they they do that ten minutes into the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have your big mech fight ten minutes into the game, and then you throw uh, you throw it like a mile into the air. Or something. It's ridiculous. Then all the other boss I, fights are all like one v one, like all sword battles basically, and they're all pretty good. 
Which is which is cool. Yeah, I like that. I, I like because it is trying to do something that's different than the solid titles that it mm. pretty much just reverses everything right out the gate. I think that's a nice touch. Um, but as I said, we'll talk about this mission a little more. Uh, we have a gameplay episode coming out soon, and we wanted to talk a little bit about co-op, and me and Brian did this mission together as co-op. Um, I don't think there's any big insight that we are not hold, you know, that we're holding back from you from that uh, co-op playthrough of this mission, but um, it was a good one for the two of us to really like battle together. And so, yeah, it's it's uh, also very very easily solves the uh, the not having a machine gun issue because I just I did that, <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. So yay, long grueling battle over. Surely the world is saved and we can return to Mother Base. Of course not. Peace Walker may be immobilized from launching, but false data is still being transmitted to NORAD, meaning the U.S. may still be considering retaliation for a non-existent attack. They could try to get into the Mammal Pod, but as a nuclear platform, it was designed to withstand a nuclear blast itself, so there's no way to blast in. Drowning it may work, leveraging the water pressure into its cracked facade, but at 500 tons, MSF has nothing that can move Peace Walker. Snake gets to play one last ace in his sleeve. He has Huey patch him in directly to the Pentagon, who for their part seem more intent on retaliating than not, which proves Coleman's deterrence theory may be wrong. It all falls on Snake's skills as a diplomat, which uh, he hasn't really trained for. He claims to be Big Boss. Big Boss? Patch him through! Mr. Chairman, I'll get straight to the point. Cancel the retaliatory strike now. What? The radar blips you're seeing are all fakes. No one's launched any nukes. How do you know? The launch data is fake. Part of an experiment that leaked. You weren't supposed to receive it. Your radar is showing missiles that don't exist. If you're lying, then we've got ten minutes till we're toast. We have to retaliate or more Americans die. The experiment was planned and executed by the CIA station chief in Central America. Then put him on! He's dead. I can give you his name, though. We need more than the authentication code you gave the switchboard. We need proof you're actually Big Boss. Do you have any? (sighs) All right. If you know the name Big Boss, then maybe you were there at the ceremony when I received the title from President Johnson. Indeed I was. We don't have time for this bullshit. Hold it. Let's hear him out. You were saying? At the ceremony... The DCI tried to shake my hand. I refused. What happened in that room is classified, top secret. Only a handful of people would know. He's making it up. Don't listen to it. Wait. Why did you refuse to shake his hand? Because I knew where my loyalty belonged. Snake is able to prove himself to the chairman, calling back to the debriefing with LBJ 10 years ago following Operation Snake Eater. We get the scene recreated in Ashley Wood's comic book art, but sadly there's no ocelot pointing at you through the window. But even that is not enough, the other joint chiefs override the chairman, literally at gunpoint. Out of nowhere, as if, as if it knows all hope is lost, the mammal pod opens up and the boss's voice welcomes Jack in. She wants Snake to remove all the motherboards in her to stop the launch. This time inside the AI pod, there's butterflies and other ephemera floating about as Snake pulls out the boards. These boards are not for your Metal Gear Zeke, as they do not have the telltale icons. 
The boss narrates to Snake, starting first with some of her lines from MGS3. As Snake destroys more and more of her quote-unquote brain, the AI starts getting stupider, Flowers of Algernon style, reverting back to its base configuration. It reads the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog line, it starts giving less and less accurate estimations of pi, and it even reads the Tokyo train stations that the AI kernel in MGS2 communicates to Raiden while it freaks out. I mentioned the quick brown fox line specifically because as the boss AI degenerates, it twists that phrase into essentially the core conflict of MGS, the lonely fox chases the one-eyed hound. But despite all this, the data doesn't stop transmitting. Despite disabling the mammal pod, the reptile pod has taken over transmission capabilities and is continuing the false data stream to NORAD. Huey explains that among animals, some that survive massive brain injuries eventually offload certain cognitive functions to other parts of the body. It looks to be the end. The Joint Chiefs appear to be retaliating, Peace Walker cannot be stopped, and there's some great David Hayter acting here being despondent as fuck. Why? I don't understand. Answer me. Tell me why. Answer me. You actually go into a third Peace Walker battle now, a separate mission on the select screen. This isn't a real mission, though. You don't even get a ranking upon completion. I imagine this one exists just so that the ending of the game can be replayed without having to endure the entire Peace Walker battle again. You're basically double-killing Peace Walker's corpse here, just laying into it with everything you got, regardless of how futile it is. The countdown ticks away, until a song is heard. Sing a song, a 1973's Carpenter hit, in the voice of Lori Allen as the boss. To that tune, Peace Walker begins its long, slow walk into the water. Its mind might be fucked, but its heart is taking over. Good lord, it's an AI miracle. As it drowns itself, the missiles on NORAD's radar turn to peace signs. Huey calls it functional compensation, that all parts of the boss and Peace Walker are working together to create one true will. The fact that this will is burying itself in the waters, while the framework of AI and scientists that created it will linger on, can be traced all the way to MGS4's ending. Strangelove, Miller, and Boss wax poetic about the boss's last sacrifice, referring to her as the ghost in the machine, which absolutely should not remind you of anything else whatsoever. She chose to put down the gun in the end. She saw the beauty of the world in space, and though she knew peace was an illusion, it was an illusion worth striving for. She wanted to put the gun down and to sing. You saw it, didn't you? When you went to space, that there's beauty outside of battle. I understand. In the end, it was you who put down your gun and chose instead to sing. They can all hear you. I know they can. And your will shall surely live on. That's what you wanted. So much that you gave up everything you had. You couldn't achieve it. 
Isn't that right? And still, all you can do is sing. There's no peace to be found anywhere. And so, we can only keep on hoping. Hoping for the illusion we call peace. At the dock, Snake salutes the boss, and then in one fluid motion, unties the headband around his head and lets it fly off into the wind. It was her bandana, her symbol, her that he couldn't let go of these past ten years. But now Snake can let go, and with that, drop the needle on Heaven's Divide by Donna Burke and roll credits. We even get the multiple rotating piece logos on the loading screen at this point. Before I go further, I'll give Brian a chance to talk about this game's ending and what happens with the boss, Strangelove, and Snake. I don't have a lot to say, honestly. It's, it's I don't know, I, I, I think it's great. See, I hesitate to say that it's a great like capper for the boss because I feel like that already, you already got everything you needed in three. It's really, like I said, it's, it's the best uh, character development we get for any snake in any of these games, I feel like. And that includes MGS1, who, uh, where Solid Snake had a great arc there. But I, I just, I don't know. It's really very satisfying, but it's not really, I don't really want to discuss about it. It, it just, it makes sense. It works. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it kind of, because a lot of the emotional stuff here, we got out last time when we talked about the horse and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's like kind of like the emotional catharsis, and this kind of feels like maybe the narrative catharsis. Um, or I don't know how to say it, but it. I Peace feel Walker like it, walking into the, in the ocean is one of my favorite. Definitely like a, if I had a top 10 Metal Gear moments, it would be on there. But it's not really like, I don't know. It just, yeah, of course that's what happened. It's great. Yeah. It's simpler. It's simpler than a lot of the other. I mean, it's the thing about this game in general, I think. This and three are the two most kind of straightforward Metal Gears, and I think that helps them out a lot. Like they they're just enjoyable to play, enjoyable to experience. Yeah, um, and I, I refer to it kind of jokingly as an AI miracle, but mm-hmm. this is like one of the few moments of this game that kind of bends reality in a way that Metal Gear Solid usually does, like yeah. you know a Psycho Mantis or a Sorrow kind of thing. But there hasn't been a lot of that in Peace Walker. Peace Walker might be the most grounded game up until this point. I know it's working with pretty fantastical technology, yeah. Um, but there isn't like that hyper reality or super supernatural element that has been in most games up until this it's, point. It's it's the most. It's literally grounded because it's the most. Like it, I think it's the most uh, referential and dependent on actual real world history. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because even though uh, what's called Snake Eater was a historical setting as well, they basically created that environment, the location, the geopolitics behind it, even though they were able to borrow from, you know, JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis. This itself is more of a concrete scenario, um, minus the Peace Walker and big bosses of it all. You can pretty much be guaranteed the U.S. was basically doing this, um, Mm. as we've already discussed uh, several times in this coverage. So, But I think it... um Oh, how was I going to phrase this? It may, yeah, it makes Peace Walker, like I said, it's more straightforward and more enjoyable. Oh, this is another this is another uh, area where the um, not having to lip sync really, really helps the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, which reminds me, uh, one of the things, like, I don't think it's like a weakness per se, 
But um, the way that Coleman is able to kind of activate Peace Walker, even though he's dying in a helicopter with like MSF people around him, that's something that if they actually had to stage in a 3D environment, um, mm. might be kind of hokey. But this is where like kind of the 2D presentation of the so story. So the comic book storytelling comes in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's those things where they're able to bend stuff just a little, but that's utilizing the form that they're engaging with the story um, to kind of, you know, gloss over some things that might not work in other mediums. So I really appreciated that because um, it's just kind of like, oh, he just pushed a button, was no one watching him. But the way it's kind of framed and shot with the Ashley Wood art actually makes it work, mm-hmm. um, which is smart. He, come, he comes off of, he, he's not in panel, so he appears mm-hmm. because he's, it's, a, it's a comic book, yeah. Which makes me think that um, if not Kojima himself, at least the art directors, Ashley Wood, Shinkawa, they they understand what they're doing. That it's not just we're making these 2D art to save space, but we're actually you know playing with the form a little bit, um, which is nice. Yep. It's not just purely aesthetic. Um, the credits end just like how this game opens, with a quote from Immanuel Kant's Perpetual Peace, Chapter 1. The quote reads... In time, all standing armies must be abolished. Not just an admirable goal, but I think, too, something we should remember as Snake and Kaz forward their new kind of business. The credits also give a loving dedication to Project Ito, or Satoshi Ito, who was a close Kojima friend who wrote MGS fanfic and eventually the MGS4 novelization. He died of cancer at age 34 in 2009. Following the credits, we get another Metal Gear Solid timeline, as has been tradition since MGS3. This timeline basically takes us through the timeline of the Cold War, ending at the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. A lot of tidbits here are actual historical going on, but Otacon's birth is shoehorned in here in 1980. The credit roll ends with the message, To be continued in Chapter 5, as Heaven's Divide plays us into the MGS Peace Walker title card. We get our traditional post-credits audio stinger as well, this time a call between Snake and Kaz. Snake tells Miller he's done looking for the truth and admits to feeling betrayed by the boss. In the end, she rejected her life as a soldier, which which meant rejecting him in the process, and as such, she was consumed by the times. Snake will not suffer the same fate. This is the start, as the kids say, of Big Boss's heel turn. Which here, at the end of Chapter 4, is where I want to do our deep dive into our lead character, as Big Boss finally claims the title given to him ten years ago. I'm done. Snake, you don't mean I'm done looking for the truth. What are you saying, Snake? I was wrong. Come on, boss. Everybody's waiting for you. She betrayed me, Kaz. She what? In the end. She put down her gun. And when she did, she rejected her entire life up to that point, including me. The last time we covered Jack, or Snake, or Big Boss was all the way back in episode 14 at the start of our MGS3 coverage, almost 30 episodes ago. You can check that episode out for a lot of our standard character deep dive stuff, his name and design and influences. We want to use this space to connect everything up to MGSV, the bridge that connects Naked Snake to his phantom 10 years from now. A lot of what transpired between Operation Snake Eater and Peace Walker incident is up in the air, mostly due to the quasi-canonical status of Portable Ops from 2006. That game depicts Big Boss as meeting Frank Yeager, Colonel Campbell, and establishing the very first Foxhound unit. Paramedic and Sigint appear in that game as well. 
The only thing we can confirm, thanks to this game, is that Snake was in San Geronimo at the time the game depicts. After that, it's up to the player how canonical they want it to be for their own headcanon. Oh, and Big Boss founding Foxhound? That factoid has stuck, established 1970. Also in 1970, Big Boss joined Zero's fledgling Patriot team, including all our friends from MGS3 like Sigint and Paramedic and Ocelot. In 71, Snake would rescue Eva in Hanoi, and she'd jump on board as well. Meanwhile, Zero was weaponizing the idea of Big Boss, aggrandizing him as the greatest soldier so Zero could bend that image towards his own ends. I think of it as a twisted version of Nolan's Bruce Wayne discussing Batman. As a man, flesh and blood, Naked Snake could be destroyed, but as a symbol, he could be incorruptible. You're saying Bruce Wayne is Batman? The, the billionaire playboy. I don't believe it. I just read Batman Year One, which is, has a fun little arc about that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Snake didn't take too well to that, and they started to quarrel. In order to not lose control of his symbol, Zero executed Les Enfants Terribles, giving birth to Liquid, Solidus, and of course, Solid Snake. But that proved to be the final straw between Jack and Zero, and Snake was out. Eva, if you recall, bore the twins to term. Snake drifted and eventually met Kaz. That gets us to Peace Walker and everything we've covered so far. I do think, uh, honestly, I wonder if one of the reasons I never really, A, because I, I, there's not, a, they wouldn't, I mean, they would make one up, but there's not really a conflict for Snake to fight in during this stuff. But I also wonder if one of the reasons they, they shied away from doing this is because at some point there would have to be a conversation where Ocelot just openly states his intentions and talks about what he wants to happen. And I just don't think Ocelot can do that because he's a little freak who gets off on, on lying to people. Like he, he never, I don't, how many times in the series does he plainly state his intentions and like have an open conversation with somebody? He hates it. Yeah. And it, it's, I think it's why he's such a fan favorite character. It's because he never has any, he never has any like earnest or emotional beats. He's just a little freak. Mm-hmm. And even if you think about conversations where he's quote unquote being forward or honest with people, it's almost always a lie. Yeah. Uh, I think about uh, the tanker in MGS2 when he takes yep. Ray and he's like, I'm taking it back for the Patriots is like his big thing that he's telling everyone, but that's not his goal at all, really. Yeah. Um, nor is it, nor, nor does he care about Mother Russia, comrade. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's always lying. Because I said, he's a little freak. We are going to kink shame Ocelot for his weird kink. Oh, and there'll be a lot of that in MGSV, I'm sure. Uh, one thing that, like, I like some of the ideas in Portable Ops. Like, I, I like the idea of uh, Big Boss and Campbell meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good one. I am let, I don't know how much you know about the Portable Ops story with I've Ray watched Fox it. I've watched and it before, yeah. Frank Yeager. Um, that I'm a little less great on, just because I viewed Frank Yeager as closer to Solid Snake's age. Um, yeah. But he's basically, he goes by Null. As, like, that's yep. the first version of Gray Fox in Portable Ops. And I just feel like that's kind of not what I love so much about the canon from Portable Ops. Um, I like the idea of having, you know, Frank Yeager be involved. But I think the way he was involved doesn't really line up with how I think of the rest of the Metal Gear timeline. Um, we can also talk but, about the Gene, the, the great villain. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Gene and Python and all the great... Um, villains from portable ops that we all remember and know and love um, because we all played that game on sony's playstation portable well you can also play such hits as metal gear solid peace walker and obviously seven crisis core (laughs) well i'd at least recommend that two much better games (laughs) yes 
I chose this moment to talk about Big Boss because this is simultaneously the height of his power and the beginning of his tragedy, which begins right quick. The events of Ground Zeroes occur soon after this game ends, and then Big Boss proper is in a coma for nine years. We spend 99% of the time with a fake, a phantom, a a memetic copy in the Phantom Pain. Every fandom gets into moralizing arguments about characters, and MGS is no different. Much to consider when it comes to Big Boss and his arc from Operation Snake Eater to his downfall in Zanzibar Land. His MGS4 coda notwithstanding, his death meaningfully occurred in Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake on the MSX. Some people are adamant that he's a good guy or a bad guy as they see fit, a reflection of their own politics twisted through narrative. I do think Peace Walker portrays a sympathetic, heroic Big Boss, though one with glances of future villainies and questionable ethics. And I am certain the end results of his actions in MGSV are villainous in ways in the ways he perpetuates war and allows this non-consenting phantom to do what he does in his place and in his name. That will be a discussion for that game for sure. But those are just my opinions based on my interpretations of the facts. We know Kojima prefers the former based on the quote, facts don't matter, only interpretations, from Nietzsche that opens up the phantom pain. I do think that it is intentionally left opaque so that we have to come to conclusions about Big Boss on our own and really grapple with it. To the extent we even want to, based on how deep you want to dive into all the tapes in MTSV and even this game. But I think trying to pass absolute moral judgments on characters in fiction is kind of boring, and what matters is how the characters speak to the themes or tone of the narrative. In both, I think we look to Big Boss as one of tragedy, of how his vision for breaking away from the times is both heroic but also doomed. And not just doomed pragmatically, but in a damning sense. He literally tells his men they are going to hell. They do that by commodifying war, this new kind of business. Snake has ideals, perhaps even transformative ones, in wanting to fight against Cypher and the Patriots, but what he will unleash will create the broken world of Snakes and Metal Gears, a a world of forever war. The Phantom Pain story opens up with the words, just another day in a war without end, outer heaven. That's why I had that long tangent about the Brotherhood Without Banners from Game of Thrones. I felt that was a good framing device for looking at the fall of Big Boss and Outer Heaven. And while I think that the TV show had mixed results with Daenerys Targaryen, I think that character can be informative too. A legendary, messianic rise to power that rallied all sorts of support to her side, only for the very thing she desired to bring about the ruin of her and everything she wanted to protect. My thoughts are that Big Boss is cool. I think he's cool, and I think I support what he's doing. Hearing about it more and more, we're we're really out there. No, I, I, I actually do. You just brought up a point. I wonder how much of the sort of the MSF stuff we don't see, like the because Cos mentioned several times, this is like the most important thing they've done. Like they generally just mercenaries. And I wonder if any of that is how much of that is self-destructive on snake's part. Like he's just looking for someone to kill him or looking for some way to be, def- like he just, because he, he obviously is mentally and physically broken from, from snake eater. That's one of the things I, that's one of the reasons I don't like the, the, the portal op stuff being sneaking in there is that I, I feel like he just sort of had no, he was, you know, he was like Solid Snake. He was just sort of there. He had, he had no purpose. He had no. I, he wasn't writing for anything specifically. He was a tool mm-hmm. of the government. Well, I guess he was in this case. He was a tool of the burgeoning war economy in the in the sixties and seventies. But like, 
military industrial complex. I don't know. I wonder if that, that that's something that can be read in there is he was just sort of self-destructive. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, telling your men you're going to hell is a pretty explicit, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think um, Snake. I don't think Snake sees any honor in what what they were doing. Right. Um, even if, even if he has ideas and he's trying to, <clears throat> he's trying to figure out. But I, it, the, what this game proves is that he doesn't really. He didn't really understand what the boss's ideals were. Mm-hmm. He still didn't all this time. So I feel like, if anything, a- I feel like that that is his dark. Like I. I it's just why it's hard to really say that he he become ter, because starts turning into a villain after this game because I feel like he's actually even if his even if his um the end result is is you know has him paints him as an antagonist of this series I feel like from this point is when he's actually actively trying to fulfill some sort of worldview and do something mm-hmm. what he thinks is something good. It's. It's supposed to, I think, uh, be kind of an opposite of Solid Snake self-actualization, mm-hmm. um, where his, where you know, Solid Snake self-actualization led him to, you know, try to eradicate the world of Metal Gears, um, whereas Big Bosses kind of leads him to create the world of Metal Gears. Um, but I and like I know I talk, you know, villain, good, bad. I think some of it is, I just really like to just think of it as a tragedy. Um, because I, I see like the boring, like fandom, you know, like the ones they have about Darth Vader. It's like, Oh, Darth Vader is my favorite character. Uh, actually Darth Vader is a war criminal who kills people that we like. And I'm like, these are fake people. You don't have to like treat their crimes as, you know, need, they don't need to be put on trial as if they were in the real world. If you think Darth Vader is the coolest character, good. That's a good opinion to have. Um, you don't have to like fret over his kill count from rogue one or something. Um, and that's like kind of the good bad guy debate that I want to elide or like when mm. we talk about stuff, we talk about a kind of literary analysis, not in terms of like, who do we stand um, from the Metal Gear fandom? Although I do stand Big Boss because um, he's cool, like you said. Uh, anything else you want to get? Sorry, I got carried away. <laughs> not really. No, I feel like anything else we can. This is all stuff for me. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, when I say these things. These are, again, my interpretations. I'm not saying either Brian thinks these things or even that you should think these things. Um, I just hope it's coherent with kind of how we've been presenting the entire game series up until this point. But, you know, that's my job to prove it to you, not for you to take it on my word. Anyway, I think that's a good launching pad for Big Boss once we get to Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain. The events of Ground Zeroes occurred just months after the Peace Walker incident, so that's why this section is more about framing the MGSB coverage. We'll probably cover Big Boss's Phantom early during the Phantom Pain, and I really want to come back to Big Boss after the twist ending and a chance to really square up the events of the Phantom Pain proper. Between the tapes and all the side missions, there's going to be even more history and analysis than we've done so far in Peace Walker. But hey, this game isn't done. We still got a few more Peace Walker episodes left. We want to give space to the rest of the story in Chapter 5, as well as have some open discussion about the game's systems and side missions. And of course, we will do our traditional thematic wrap-up at the end. But for now... I won't make the same choice as her. My future is going to be different. Then? Yeah, that's right. From now on... The 
that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sounds Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which manuclearbomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm still Brian, and I'm a new man. El Amo Nuevo. Can't wait to hear what you have for revengeance when we get to that one. I have some ideas. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices within my God, stop eating the wire.